Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a message entitled No Future Without Forgiveness. We're looking at how Jesus reveals himself to his disciples on that resurrection Sunday. And one of the disciples that was left out, we find out how Jesus announces peace and forgiveness missions us to do the same. So we're going to go ahead and head to the talk right now. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot of stuff coming up here in the next couple of weeks, exciting stuff that we'll be uh, announcing uh, starting next weekend, so stay tuned, and uh, let's go ahead and head to the park, North Shore Vineyard, downtown Tuttle. Thanks for listening. The passage for today is John 20, 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, this would be the original Easter day, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in the nails where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What do you do when someone disappoints you in a big way. I think we all have instances that occur regularly in our lives where we are counting on someone to do something and they don't come through with it. And most of the time, these these are rather mundane things in life, like you're expecting your spouse to deposit a check in the bank and then... Your spouse 
drops the ball, you're overdrawn in the account, or perhaps your spouse is expecting you to pick up the kids from after-school activities, and you get tied up, and all of a sudden there is tension there. But occasionally, once in a while, we have somebody drop the ball in a big way in our lives. There is something that really requires somebody to not drop the ball, and they drop it. And those kind of situations are very difficult. And there's typically two different ways that, that we naturally react to these type of situations, these types of conflicts, these disappointments. We talk about this a good bit in our Relate class. Some people are rhinoceroses, or rhinoceri, I don't know how you would say it. Some people take the form of a rhinoceros when conflict happens, and they charge ahead when they feel disappointed or threatened or angry. Other people are like hedgehogs. They withdraw into a spiky little ball. The hedgehogs will engage in passive-aggressive behavior, the cold shoulder, uh, slowly undermining things, while the rhinoceroses among us will charge ahead and oftentimes cause more destruction than the original event. And I say all this because when we look at this passage today, we see how God handles it when we drop the ball. We see how God in Jesus Christ handles disappointment. This story begins on that first Easter Sunday in that evening. And we see that the disciples are gathered in a room. They're hiding. They've got the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders who had crucified Jesus. Because naturally they're thinking if word gets out that we were in Jesus' inner circle, the same fate may await us. But on top of all of that, I can imagine that there was also this element of confusion. When I think of how these disciples had left everything to follow Jesus and had followed him for three years, three years of miracles and messages about the kingdom of God, three years of, of being, you know, spending just intimate time with Jesus around late night campfires shared meals, walking on dusty roads. Three years that developed this anticipation within each of them that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the one who was going to turn this whole thing around. And when I think of how all of that had, had kind of developed to a climax on Palm Sunday just a week before, and how the energy in the atmosphere was palpable. That at any moment, this thing is going to catch fire. There's going to be a revolution. There's going to be a new king in town. When I look at the ecstasy of Palm Sunday, it just makes the agony of Good Friday that much more. Because these very disciples who expected Jesus 
as the Messiah to turn things around, saw their dreams come to a brutal and bloody end on that Good Friday as Jesus was beaten, whipped, and hung on a cross. They were gathered that night, that first Easter, in fear and in confusion, but there also must have been a great deal of shame. You know, shortly before Jesus is betrayed, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples, and he tells them, all of you guys are going to turn your backs on me. And the disciples, they don't take this, especially Peter. Peter says, I don't know about these other guys. You know, they'll probably turn their backs on you, Jesus. But I'm Peter. I'm the one you called rock. I'm going to be here. You can rely on me. In fact, Jesus, I'm willing to go through suffering, even death for you. And Jesus tells Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, you're not going to die for me. Not now at least. You will deny me three times before tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows, before the sun comes up, you will deny me. And sure enough, every one of the disciples abandons Jesus in the moment that he needed them the most. And so the atmosphere in that room that night was one of fear, confusion, and shame. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were confused about their place in life in the future. And they all had great shame that when their dear friend, their teacher, their rabbi, Face the worst, they lack the courage to follow him through it. And it is into this very situation that Jesus appears. Now, it's interesting that the first thing that Jesus says upon entering the room, and by the way, he doesn't come through the locked doors, he just appears in the room. The first thing he says, which he will say, three times is shalom. Peace be with you. Now, I kind of think that this first shalom, peace be with you, is to calm them down because they're about to lose control of some of their bodily functions out of fear, which is natural when you see someone appear in the room when the doors are locked. But again, he says, shalom, peace be with you. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You know, one of the hallmarks of the ministry of Jesus all throughout his ministry was forgiveness. There's story after story where Jesus extends mercy and forgiveness to those who need it. There's a story of a, of a paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof 
of a, of a house where Jesus is praying and, and healing the sick and his friends lower him down and Jesus, rather than addressing the paralysis, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals them. Because as, as crippled as this man appeared on the outside, the, the greater need was for forgiveness. We see the woman caught in adultery thrown down at the, at the feet of Jesus by her accusers. And when Jesus has run off her accusers, he extends forgiveness to her and says, go and sin no more. We see that forgiveness is a part of the very fabric of everything Jesus has done. And this is nowhere clearer than when Jesus is hanging on the cross, crucified by his enemies, the ones who resisted him the most throughout his earthly ministry. And yet in that moment where Jesus could call for retribution, Jesus instead, hanging there with one of his final breath, says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And here, just a few days later, we see forgiveness in action. I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where someone offends me, does me wrong, drops the ball, I'm angry, I'm disappointed, and this person may apologize to me, and I'll be like, oh, it's, it's cool, I forgive you. And though I say I forgive them with my lips, the reality is within, I, I haven't really let them go. <laughs> and if not dealt with, this, this may manifest itself over time in resentments. <laughs> but Jesus shows us what forgiveness looks like. If there was anyone who had a right to be disappointed in his own disciples, it was Jesus. If Jesus was like you and me, the first thing he would have done was say, what is up with you guys? You all were talking a big talk and none of you made it. What a bunch of losers. What a big disappointment. I spent three years with you guys. But there is no recrimination in the voice of Jesus. There's no anger. There's not any passive-aggressive behavior. Jesus forgives them. But he doesn't forgive them merely with a phrase forgiveness. He says, peace be with you. Shalom. I've said this on many occasions, but the word that is translated peace in, in English from the Bible. The word is, throughout the Bible, is shalom. The Old Testament concept of shalom is, is a much more rich concept than our concept of peace. See, for us, peace is oftentimes an absence of, of conflict, but the Old Testament idea of shalom that was central to the Jewish people is, is greater than a lack of conflict. Shalom is a holistic term that speaks of everything set right. It speaks of harmony inside and out. 
it speaks of things being rightly related. Jesus, in the moment where he could express his disgust and contempt for the disciples, he offers them shalom. And what's interesting is how he offers it. He says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. See, forgiveness at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's not mere words. It is the restoring of relationship. Jesus is is not just uh, glossing over what they've done or not done. Jesus is actually restoring relationship. He's giving them his own spirit. In this picture, there's no ignoring what was done to Jesus. The scars are still there. There's no glossing over it. And yet Jesus shows no interest in retribution, no interest in furthering that conflict. Jesus is all about peace and forgiveness. And it's interesting because in this passage, he's actually commissioning his disciples to to the same kind of ministry that he did, one of peace and forgiveness. And and this has always been an odd passage to me because uh, even as I was studying it this week, I, I just find myself, I don't know what this means. If you forgive someone... Their sins are forgiven. If you don't, then their sins aren't forgiven. And I, I, I've not understood what that meant very well. When I think as I look at this story, is Jesus the incarnate word of God, peace incarnate, forgiveness incarnate, it, it, it becomes a lot more clear. What Jesus does for them, he expect them, expects them to do for others. See, Jesus is calling us as his followers to forgive other people because often people can't forgive themselves. I mean, that's the disciples that night. I can only imagine the shame that someone like Peter must have been feeling after disappointing, letting Jesus down. Peter is, is, you know, kind of the, you know, Jesus' right-hand guy, fails in a big way. I can imagine the shame that he was feeling, but Jesus forgives him. And in the same way, we are called to extend forgiveness to those who can't forgive themselves. And that's where the shalom comes in. That's where the beginning of the healing, the restoration that we receive in Christ comes to others. See, oftentimes, it's it's actually easier to forgive somebody else, even if something maybe pretty big than it is to forgive ourselves when we've done something wrong, when we drop the ball in a big way. And yet, when we can see that God has released us, that God is not interested in punishing us or playing the same games that the kingdom of this world plays, we can then have the grace to let ourselves go we can then begin to receive the shalom that comes within. Now, this story isn't over here because Jesus still has to deal with one disciple that wasn't there. 
I was uh, listening to a podcast this last week, uh, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Hidden Brain. And they were talking about this sociological disorder, they called it, <laughs> called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And they were talking about how the FOMO has, has really kind of grown off the charts lately because of social media. They were mentioning how, you know, you can be on a vacation having a wonderful time, and then you open up Facebook and you see that your friends are having a party, and immediately your happiness is diminished a little bit because you see that there's something you're missing out on. So we have this fear of missing out. And for us in the modern world, oftentimes it is due to social media that, that contributes to FOMO. But sometimes we actually do miss out on something, and we don't ever want to miss out on it again. <laughs> Thomas was one of these guys that missed out. He wasn't there on that first Sunday. And Thomas hears him going on and on about how Jesus appeared in the room and how he said peace and shalom and did all this stuff. And Thomas thinks he's just getting punked. He just thinks it's a cruel, practical joke. And Thomas says, I won't believe unless I touch his wounds for myself. But here we see a week later in the same room, Thomas is there now. And Jesus does the exact same thing he did with the other disciples. He shows up and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. Come over here, Thomas. Touch my wounds. Thomas replies with, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas takes a, you know, we, we need to lighten up on Thomas a little bit. We have the term doubting Thomas, and he gets a bad rap. But the reality is Thomas hasn't done anything different from the other disciples. Mary Magdalene is the first person at the tomb on that resurrection Sunday. And she sees an empty tomb, and she does not assume that it means Jesus is resurrected. In fact, she starts wondering, what have they done with his body? It's not until she encounters Jesus that she believes. And when she tells the other disciples that Jesus is risen, they don't believe her until Jesus shows up. So for Thomas to not believe until he actually sees Jesus is no different from any of the other disciples. But what I love about this picture, whether it's Thomas or the other disciples, is that Jesus is not put off by Thomas's skepticism. <laughs> Jesus is not put off by the fact that he is desiring proof of the resurrection. But Jesus does close with this line. He says, blessed are you because you have seen and believed, but even more blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. I think when it comes to the idea of God, one of our hardest issues is that we latch on to images of God which are based on the religion we grew up in, the ideas we've been handed by culture and society, or perhaps even, you know, when we hear a term like Father God, 
we, we have nothing to compare it to except our earthly fathers. And so if you grew up with a father who was abusive, you can't help but think of the term father as being abusive. If you grew up with a, a father that was distant or absent or cold, you can't help but think of a father in that sort of way. That's the way the human mind is. We, we have to have some kind of metaphor to get us to, to imagine God. And when I read this passage today, I can't help but wonder what it might be like if we let our images of who God is be shaped by a passage like this. These images we have of a God who is petty and vindictive, who is just after performance and perfection, who just wants unquestioning belief, those pictures would have to be altered a great deal if we compare them to what is revealed about God and Jesus in this passage. I'm sure many of the people listening to this, you've probably got things that you have a hard time forgiving yourself for. Maybe other people have forgiven you. Maybe you think that there's just no way God could forgive me for these things. There's no way I can let myself off the hook. I hate what I've done. I hate the way I've let God down or let other people down. And yet, punishing yourself is never going to make you any better. Walling yourself in in shame is never going to cause transformation. The only transformation that can come is if you receive the forgiveness Jesus is extending. And that is where the peace and the wholeness will begin to bring healing to your life. So I want to close today with a bit of a blessing. And I'll start off with the words of Jesus. Shalom, peace be with you. I bless you with the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. May, your may you experience the freedom and wholeness within from knowing that you are forgiven and accepted by God. May you grow in peace that comes from this forgiveness, and may you be a conduit of forgiveness to those trapped in shame and resentment. May you announce forgiveness through your words and actions to those who cannot forgive themselves. Amen.